Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Our final scripture lesson comes from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's Word. On this Christmas Eve, I want to take just a few minutes to consider why we're here. This is a pretty remarkable fact if you think about it. Here we are on a random Saturday night in December, and approximately 260 million people around the world on this Saturday night in December are going to stop what they're doing and get dressed up and go to their local churches to worship. And more than that, uh, approximately 2 billion people tomorrow will gather and exchange gifts and and have their rooms decorated and, and celebrate with families this day of Christmas. So what is it that brings 260 million people out on a Saturday night and and sparks 2 billion people to gather around and celebrate? What could motivate such an event? Well, the readings that we heard from the Bible tonight tell us that the thing that motivated such an event is the birth of a baby. A baby born in a tiny village of Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago, but in history as a real event a baby born for us, a baby whose birth was so significant that it set off worldwide in history-long celebration. In our time together tonight, I want to think about this baby just a bit by considering the words we just heard read from Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to open to Philippians 2, or if you want to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you'd find it on page 980. We're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Now, as, you're, as you're turning there, I wonder, maybe I would just ask, some of you undoubtedly have certain stories, perhaps uh, books or movies that you like to read or watch every year at Christmas. Maybe you're a Home Alone family and you watch Home Alone every year. Maybe it's the Grinch. Maybe you, you reach back a few more decades and it's White Christmas. Maybe you like to pick up the Herdman's and uh, the greatest Christmas pageant ever. Or maybe it's something just as simple as it was the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. 
There's these words, these stories that we're, we're very familiar with, but I would hazard a guess that one of the greatest Christmas stories of all time and probably some of the most uh, memorable Christmas characters of all time come from Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. We know the characters. Scrooge, that miser who humbugs Christmas. Tiny Tim, the, the boy who suffers more than anyone and yet spreads the greatest cheer. And we know those, those images, those images like Bob Cratchit working feverishly in the freezing cold without any flexibility in his schedule even on Christmas. Or the, the image of the ghost of Jacob Marley with his eternal chains clanking behind him up the stairs into Scrooge's bedroom. These images are, are well known. And as you likely know, Scrooge's life is changed forever when he's confronted by three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. Well, here in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul seeks to change our lives too by confronting us with three truths, the truth of Christmas past, the truth of Christmas present, and the truth of Christmas future. And I want to look at each of them together. So let's start where Paul starts. He begins by confronting us with the truth of Christmas past. And if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll find it in verses 5 through 8. Paul tells us what happened on that first Christmas night 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. He writes that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, there are a few important things that Paul tells us here as he talks about Jesus and what happened on that night in Bethlehem. Paul tells us who Jesus was. Jesus was none other than God himself. Paul tells us that Jesus has the form of God, or as the words indicate, Jesus possesses the very nature of God. Paul tells us that he was fully equal with God. As you think about these things, you might think of another verse that's quoted often at Christmas time in John chapter 1, John 1, 1, where we read that the Word who became flesh was with God and he was God. That is, God the Father and God the Son exist eternally with God the Spirit, one God equal in power and glory. And that's who Jesus was, the Son of God, eternally God. And yet, despite being God in such power and glory, Jesus did not grasp that equality with God. That is, he did not uh, fight or hold on to that equality to be maintained as a right of his. Rather, Jesus willingly emptied himself, becoming a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now, I think it's important for us to notice that when it talks about uh, Jesus emptying himself, it doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. He didn't uh, take something away from who he was. Rather, he added something to who he was. He added human nature. He added human flesh. And by clothing his divine glory with human flesh, he took upon himself the limitations of humanity. And note that Jesus is the one who did this willingly. All throughout, Paul emphasizes that Jesus is the one who did this. Now, at the, uh, the 6 o'clock service tonight, when I looked out, there were quite a few more children than there are tonight. And having been a child myself, I could 
identify the fact that many of those children probably had no interest in getting dressed up on a Saturday night. I remember those conversations. You need to get dressed into something nicer, Chris. It's church time. Certainly, certainly jeans, certainly some sweatpants would do for that, but no. And so as I told these children, many of them were here having been told they had to get dressed, and so here they were in their khakis or dresses. But Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't told, you have to go do this. Of course, he did obey the will of the Father, but he did it willingly. He chose to empty himself. We read in this passage that he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He laid down his life on the cross. All in accordance with the will of God, yes, to save his people. But it was his will to do so. Now pause and consider for just a minute the significance of the humility of Jesus and the extent to which he sacrificed himself for the sake of others. See, Jesus' humility and others-focused self-sacrifice is magnified by the height from which he came. Many of you probably know the great French novel, or at least the story of it, Les Miserables, where Jean Valjean demonstrates his humility and his willingness to sacrifice himself when he jumps into the street, the the muddy, dirty street, and expends his strength to rescue a peasant who had been caught under a cart that tipped over. And it was remarkable that Jean Valjean, the mayor of the city, would give himself to save a peasant. Of course, it would have been all the more remarkable if it had been the king of France who had jumped into the mud and the dirt, and expended his strength to rescue that peasant. But with Jesus, we don't have an earthly mayor. We don't even have just an earthly king. We have God himself. We have God the Son in his very nature, equal with God the Father in power and glory. And it was from the height of that glory that Jesus was willing to empty himself and become a man for our sake. So his humility is magnified by the height from which he was come, but his humility is also magnified by the depths to which he was willing to go. It would have been a stunning act of humility for God to come and live as a man, even if he came and lived as as a wealthy man, as as a king on earth, one who had everything. But Jesus was willing to come as a baby. And just think for a second about a baby. It might not be very hard to imagine for some of you. You're living around them right now. Think about what a baby is able to do. What can a baby do? Basically nothing, except cry and and suck. That's about it. And yet here the Son of God became a baby, completely dependent and at the mercy of the humans that he had created. And not only did he become a baby, but he became a baby of a poor carpenter. And not only did he become a baby of a poor carpenter, but he became a baby and was born in a cow's feed box because the local motel didn't even have room for the Son of God. It doesn't get any lower than that. And so Jesus came from the the highest place and he humbled himself to the lowest place, but his humility and self-sacrifice are magnified even further by the reason for which he came. Perhaps we could imagine... God going to such great lengths for the sake of a people who loved him and honored him. But Jesus, Jesus did all of this for the sake of a people who had rejected him. Jesus did all of this for a people who were busy promoting themselves and seeking their own good 
or maintaining their freedom to live life their way, thank you very much. He did it for a people who would hear his challenge to give up living for themselves and to submit to him. And in response, they would kill him on the darkest of criminals' deaths, nailing him to a cross. That's the sort of people he came to save. And this, of course, was all of God's grace. It was God's idea to do this. It was Jesus' willingness to do this out of his humility, though we didn't deserve it, to lay aside his highest glory and to come to take the lowest station and to do it, even to this point of death, for our sake. So that's the truth of Christmas past. That is who Jesus was and what he came to do. But then we come to verse 9. And in verse 9, we find the truth of Christmas present. If the truth of Christmas past is that Jesus came to earth and was born unto a baby for our sake, where is Jesus now? What is true of him here in 2022 on Christmas Eve? Well, Paul says, since Jesus willingly humbled himself to such an extent, God has now highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. So Jesus isn't in the cow's feed box anymore. Nor is Jesus on the cross. Nor is Jesus in a tomb. As has been attested by hundreds of eyewitness accounts of men and women who were alive and recorded in history what happened, God raised Jesus from the tomb on the third day. And not only did God raise Jesus from the tomb, but 40 days later God raised Jesus again now to the right hand of God bringing him back to heaven and publicly exalting him as the Son of God and Lord of all. As one writer put it, the great God is expressing a value judgment about his Son, Jesus. Nothing will do but that he should be lifted up to the highest of all, for in the Father's eyes, he is the highest of all. Therefore, before the eyes of chosen witnesses, the Father gave visible demonstration recorded in history of his estimation of Jesus, that he is Lord of all, that he has emerged from incognito into his full and acknowledged possession of the divine name and lordship. This is who Jesus is, and this is where he is now, sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory with the name that is above every name, worthy of worship and obedience. And do you know that is great news for each one of us? Because it is Jesus' lordship over all that gives him the authority to declare that anyone who repents of sin and comes to him in faith will be covered by his blood shed for us. It is his lordship over all that gives him the authority to send his Holy Spirit into our lives and to unite us to himself and to change us more and more into his image and to give us eternal life with him when he returns. This Jesus can do because he has been exalted as Lord of all. Of course, any one of us could recognize that this lordship has not fully come in all of its implications. The brokenness of this world continues for now. God has not yet brought justice for all the oppressed. God has not yet banished sin from his people or rescued us from suffering and death. Those things are waiting for their appointed day. For now, Christ's lordship stands as an offer 
and an invitation and offer to come to him. See, Christ is reigning and he is able to save to the uttermost and he invites us to come to him and find forgiveness and peace and hope and life. That is the truth of Christmas present. Jesus reigning on high, able to save to the uttermost to anyone who will come to him. But that day of great hope, that fulfillment of all that God has promised is still coming. And Paul turns in verses 10 and 11 to describe the truth of Christmas future. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, one day the veil will be pulled back. One day, everyone alive and the souls of those who are waiting for that day will see Jesus for who he is. Every eye will see it. And when every eye sees his glory, then every knee will bow before him as king. And every voice will shout and worship to his name. Can you imagine that for a minute? Put yourself on that day, that day that's coming, when every single human being beholds him and shouts together with one voice, confessing him as Lord of Lords. And I think that I'm correct in stating that the most watched event on the world stage is the World Cup. And if you're a sports fan, you know the World Cup just concluded. And we don't have numbers for this year, but in 2018, it is estimated that 3.6 billion people around the world watched the World Cup. It's the single event that the most people watched. And that's really a stunning figure when you consider just the sheer mass of humanity that 3.6 billion people represents. In fact, in 2018, that was nearly half the human beings in the world and clear majority of people who are physically capable of watching an event. Of course, if you know about the World Cup and we're following it, you know that Argentina won the World Cup this year. And you know that just this past week, four million Argentinians gathered for a celebration parade where they shouted and rejoiced and celebrated their soccer team winning the World Cup. And in fact, this celebration was so raucous and so overwhelming that Argentina had to abandon their plan to drive the team by bus and they put them in helicopters instead for their own safety. Now talk about honor and glory and joy and celebration and masses of humanity and voices lifted up together. But that's four million. Even 3.6 billion. That is a drop in the bucket. That is nothing compared to every single knee in human history bowing before the name of the Son of God to the glory of God the Father. But that is what's coming. And that is what we will be part of because that is who he is, Jesus, the Savior and Lord of all. Now, of course, as we think about this, we have to recognize that this event will not be the same for everyone. For some, it will be a long-awaited return of their beloved king. It will be a day of justice and redemption, a day of comfort and tears wiped from eyes. It will be the day we have waited for and longed for through suffering and death. It will be a day of entering into the joy of the Lord thanks to the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us and received by faith alone. 
But for others, it will be a day of begrudging acknowledgement of a reality that they have denied. For them, it will be a day of, of separation from the Lord, a decision they chose and pursued in this life, which will now be justly confirmed for all eternity. But this is the reality that God tells us is on the horizon. This, according to God's word, is the truth of Christmas future. So these are the truths of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. If you remember the story of the Christmas carol, Scrooge woke up from his visit from the three ghosts, a changed man. He immediately bought the largest goose in the town and sent it to the Cratchit family. He chased down the charity representatives and stunned them with his generosity. And he became like a second father to Tiny Tim. I guess a review of your past, your present, and your future all in one night has that effect on a person. Tonight, we've looked at the past, the present, and the future. Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And the question for us is how will we respond to these truths? Well, I would suggest there's two in this passage, two ways we ought to respond. And Paul tells us what one response should be in verse 5, right at the start of the passage. In fact, it's the very reason he started writing this passage. He tells us that we are to have this same mind, that is the same mindset or attitude or objective as Christ demonstrated. The same humility, the same willingness to count the good of others more important than our own. The same willingness to sacrifice ourselves For the sake of others, to show the same initiative to not think of ourselves, but to pursue the good of others. And surely Christmas, above any day of the year, should remind us of Christ's humility and fill us with that same goal, desire, and mindset. And yet, Christmas seems to have plenty of ability to turn us right back on ourselves, doesn't it? Now just think about Christmas. Tomorrow we're going to find ourselves thinking about all we've done to make the day special and our kids aren't recognizing that. We're going to be thinking about our gifts and our presents that we got or we're going to be thinking about the gifts and the presents we wish we'd got that were different than the ones we actually got. And what was Jesus doing on Christmas? Giving himself willingly for our sake. Christmas is a time that we often choose to to defend ourselves or with, withdraw amidst family drama or difficulty with someone at church. But, but what was Jesus doing on Christmas? Willingly sacrificing himself for others. And how often do we need our ego popped and ourselves deflated and our desires set aside? How often do we need the reminder that we are not to look to our own interests, but to proactively seek the good of others? Because that is what Jesus did for us at Christmas. In short, the first response we should have is to to look to our union with Christ, to lead us to imitate Christ in selfless humility toward one another for each other's good as we remember that baby in the manger who willingly set aside his glory to become a servant to the point of death for our sake. That's the first response we should have. But our second response The second response this passage gives us is to consider Christ. Christ, God, considers Jesus' name the exalted name above every name. And if that is God's opinion, then surely it is the right and true opinion. And if that is who Jesus is, He is worthy of all of our worship 
and honor and praise and obedience and faith and trust. And of course, if that is who God considers Christ to be, then certainly any lesser honor given to Christ is an affront, an offense of the highest order. So it is pretty important for us to know whether we are still standing apart from him and standing on our own, or whether we have submitted to Christ as Lord. Now, I admit it may sound to some of you that it it may seem rather bold, maybe even arrogant, that I have proclaimed these as certain truths. This is what happened in the past. This is the truth of the present. This is what will happen in the future. But I assure you, if it sounds that way to you this evening, I do not proclaim these as truths out of some self-assured arrogance. I proclaim these as truths only because God has gone to great lengths to demonstrate their truth. He foretold these things hundreds of years before they happened and then fulfilled them exactly as he said he would. He did everything that he did before witnesses who wrote them down that we would have a record of it. He has preserved his word as a witness to us and given God's 100% perfect track record of fulfilling everything he would say he would do exactly in his time, I cannot help but declare this with the confidence that what God has said will happen will happen and encourage you not to take that lightly. Jesus Christ is Lord. And on a day that is coming that will be openly declared and seen by every single human being. And the good news, the good news is that Jesus Christ is reigning even now, inviting every one of us to come to him, to put our trust in him, to follow him. And he does so with the authority to welcome us into his family right now. And the great news is that if you have done that, if you are following him, then an eternal celebration joined by the tongues of billions and billions of voices who will shout it with one voice, rejoicing in the redeeming love of that baby born in Bethlehem. That celebration is just awaiting God's perfect time. And we have that to look forward to in him. Well, Charles Dickens ends his tale with that famous summary statement from Tiny Tim. You remember Tiny Tim's words? God bless us, everyone. He has. He has blessed us by sending his son as a baby in Christmas past. He has blessed us by raising his son and exalting him as Savior and Lord over all in the present. And he has promised that he will bless us again with life eternal in his presence forever when he returns. So may you go in that blessing tonight. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for not spinning out myths and stories, but coming in history and giving us your son who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a man that he might die in our place. Father, may we delight in him. May we rejoice in him. May we worship him with all our hearts and souls and minds and strength even as we have his mindset and live for the sake of one another to the glory of your name. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.